welcome to episode 253 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Listen, we have got a heck of a conversation come up on, the, on this episode. We're going to get after a little bit of deconstructionism and exvangelicalism. Yeah. And if those are words that are completely new to you, then congratulations. You have, you've managed to avoid <laughs> some serious buzzwords in this kind of somewhat of an intramural discussion. But listen, we know you're here for these strange theological topics. So we're going to talk about that. But of course, before we do, let's do some affirmations and let's do some denials. And as per usual, Tony, how about you start? Yeah. So I am proud to announce we are adding a brand new show to the network. So my affirmation today is a show called The Baptist Broadcast. Uh, which is a solo show by a guy that he and I go way back, actually. Uh, his name's Josh Summer. And uh, the very first kind of like blogging collective that I was a part of was a uh, small group called the Reformed Collective. I think I posted like three articles. <laughs> uh, and uh, my very first foray into the uh, podcasting world was like two episodes we published uh, before my co-host became a papist, uh, and we published to that uh, to that group. So Josh it hosts happens. this show called The Baptist Broadcast, which is just kind of basically like thinking out loud topics related to theology from a 1689 Baptist perspective. So I'm excited to bring uh, this show on board. Check it out. You can find it on Anchor. Uh, you can go to, I think it's Josh Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R dot org dot com, probably dot com. Uh, and check it out. He's got a blog there. Uh, but yeah, it's just a good show. Good, good kind of thinking out loud thoughts. Um, so I'm excited to bring it on. Get those Baptists in there. Yeah. Yeah. The bring more it on. the merrier. Yeah. I, I, I want to be the very best like no one ever was and I've got to catch them all. So it's like every <laughs> week there's a new Pokemon joke of coming up on this show. I, I think maybe like we're going to have to change the name of the show to like the reformed Pokemon masters. That's a podcast idea right there, actually. That is a. I'm sure a great idea for somebody yeah. who's dying to hear that. I think with like the Pokemon crowd, like that demographic, we're so hot right now. Yes. Yeah. We're going to be off, off the getting charts. invitations to like be a top 50 Pokemon podcast. I can only hope. I mean, this is probably a great reminder for people. If you head out on the interwebs to reformedpodcasts.com, there's a whole family of all kinds of really great podcast shows of the Reformed faith. I mean, we got everything out there. If there's yeah. something that you want to hear in a particular type of style, conversational, musical, solo, loved ones, it's out there. So if you haven't been there in a little while, go check it out because there's a lot of great content and you should switch it up a little bit. We know you love hearing the sweet, sultry tones of Tony's voice. There's also <laughs> a lot of other great voices out there. And I think you'll find, I'm confident you will find something else that you'll enjoy listening to. <laughs> I, I don't know where to go from there, except to hand it off to you for what you're affirming this week. Hard recommendation. So I'm affirming, this is kind of like I'm cheating again. I'm doubling down on an affirmation, but I'm bringing it back up because it's about to be available for pre-order. I got an email about it. I just went to the website and I guess maybe I'm in some kind of special chosen, the elect group. And that's why I got the email. But everybody soon is going to be able to get your own hard copy of the full version 
of the Legacy Standard Bible. And that's Ooh. what I'm affirming this week. So you may have recalled this Legacy Standard Bible is uh, it's kind of more an updated translation. It's trying to be real, have strong fidelity to like the original Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. It's basically not your grandparents NASB. So it's a legacy. It comes from that term. That term, it comes from this idea that the preserving kind of the faithful economic substance of the NASB, but with some updates to again, really go back and fine tune the language. So they're bringing back in the proper name of God for Yahweh, for instance, in the text where it's present. It's really a beautiful translation. I've talked already that there's the free LSB Bible app. So if you want to get a sense for how it feels to read it, but it's really lovely. They're going to have like all the normal coverings. They got like the goat, got like the special Italian paper. What's the other goat? Cow calf, hide, I guess. Calf. Calf. Just, yeah. I think calf just is the total, other one. Total like baby cow skin yes. cover for your Bible. Yes. Like if you're looking, this is just like all other printers these days. If you're looking for a Bible that might also double as like a really sweet pillow on your cheek, I think any number of these would also work as well. But if you go to LSB, no, sorry, excuse me, lsbible.org, uh, you can get in on the pre-order. They're coming. They've been working on this translation for quite a while. They had a version, I think, of like the New Testament, Proverbs, Psalms, yep. but now they're finally getting everything together. And one of the unique things that they're doing is... And this is, I love the honesty on this. The email I got said, listen, cardboard is so expensive right now. Like lumber, almost any paper product is super expensive because of supply strain constraints right now. And so they're like, we're not going to send boxes. But what we will do instead is I think they're calling it like the Bible Defender. It's like a, it, it's like a, a nylon, sewn nylon like cover with a zipper that they're going to send to you with the Bible. And I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of cooler, actually. It's a little bit different. So check it out, lsbible.org. Nice. Yeah, the, the LSB translation is, you know, if, if you are one of those people that love the sort of like straightforward literalism, the literal almost, they try to get almost word for word uh, right. when they can and preserve the actual like word order, which is far less important in Greek and Hebrew than it is in English, but does have sometimes have some uh, some import. Uh, the LSB is really kind of like the next generation from the NASB. So if you think of like the, there was the revised standard version and then right. it became like the English standard version. Uh, the NASB has kind of, the LSB has kind of taken on the spiritual heritage of that and the sort of the translation philosophy of that. But even within really kind of literalistic um, not dynamic equivalents, but straight equivalents, translations, even that language has changed and you still have to make accommodations for the fact that the translation, the language you're translating into changes. Uh, so this really is, I mean, I think we, I think we haven't had an actual update to the NASB probably for like 25 or 30 years. So I think 95 is what I, what I think is the most recent revision of that. You are correct. Where if you compare to something like the, um, the ESV, the last real like full on revision, I think was 2011. Um, and the NIV is kind of similar in that same sort of frame. Every translation has little like adjustments that they put out that don't constitute like a new edition. Um, so like you might have an ESV that had some revisions that you know came in a couple of years ago. But this is really like a major step in terms of like this line of Bible translation. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't have I'm not in the elect that was uh, offered a chance to pre-order it. So I'll have to try to scrape up where that is. But uh, yeah, check it out. I'm, I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of this when it comes out 
and uh, maybe we should try to find somebody who's like on the committee and have them come on the show. We should. That would be super cool, actually. I, I have this theory, which is, you know, that old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. Yeah. I have this theory that there are no non-NASB users among expositors. So like, have you ever had this happen where like, even if you're in a church where they use ESV or some dynamic equivalent like the NIV, right. I always found it so funny when pastors are really getting to the expository preaching, they'll never really be like, well, your version is probably this word, but that's not the actual thing that was said. A right. better translation and they always quote NASV yeah. or sometimes ESV and they'll say like, this is so, I love that. This is like, to your point, it's a really phenomenal resource. It's something I like to read this side by side because you're just, it's like turning that jewel over in your hands. Like what a blessing to have the scripture and many translations so that we might understand it as best as we can and that we might rely on the Holy Spirit to help us really understand what it means and what's being said. So yeah. I'm kind of stoked about this too. Here's the thing. We need to like find a way to like get a copy so that we could like give it away. Like LSB people, get, get at us. I'll get on I know that. you're listening. I'll have to check it out. The, the, the website listening. is... It's uh, it's not updated. They don't have any of their pre-orders on it yet, so we'll have to see what I can do. I'll, I'll work okay. some magic. I'll make some All calls. Right. My people will call their people. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I don't have people. It's just me. It's just, I'm, I'm no the people. people. <laughs> but I'll call some people. We have no people. I'm you know you do such a good job, Tony, with the podcast. Occasionally, this comes up where one of two things: either one people think that you and I are always together in the same place. And then when they learn that we actually live in different states, sometimes I get the follow-up question isn't, oh, well, how do you make that work? It's like, wow, so who travels to whom to do that? And I'm like, no, <laughs> we're, not, we're not traveling eight hours uh, every yeah. week to just uh, record you know, an hour and then be like, peace, I'll see you next week. Yeah, it's true. Um, but I spend second... like 60% of my week driving back and forth to Jesse's house, so <laughs> it's pretty crazy. The second question that might arise is something like, oh, like who, you guys must have like people working doing stuff like a small, like staffy part-time. We're like, nope. Nope. Just us. It's just us. Just us. Who do we think we are? 1517.org? <laughs> More to come on that later. That's a, that's Excellent. a slow burn yes. reference that we're It's going to come back later. So yeah. stay tuned. That, that was like, you know what that is like? That's like the old person who's driving and is like, has the blinker on for the eventual <laughs> left-hand yes. turn. Like that'll come up eventually. So just yep. keep that in your mind. Yep. Let's go on though to denials. What are you denying? So this is going to be one of those amazing podcast things where I have to describe something visually because I can't just show you. Excellent. And you're not on social media, so you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But I'm assuming most people that I are listening are on social media. There's this weird new phenomena that I've, I've run into, and I don't know exactly why it bothers me, but it does bother me. So here's what happens. Somebody will, will tweet something on the Twitter, right? And then somebody else will see said tweet on the Twitter and be really excited about it and want to post it to their page on Facebook. But instead of copying and pasting the thing or even using the uh, Twitter's built-in embedding functionality, they'll just take a screenshot of the tweet on the Twitter and post it to their page on Facebook. And then somebody will see the screenshot of the tweet from Twitter on the page on Facebook and will then share that to their own page or to their own timeline and so you get this kind of weird like quote pyramid. And the only thing it can like, the only thing it really reminds me of is that that picture from the office where it's like a Wayne Gretzky quote on on the uh, on the board. 
And that's all in quotations, and it says Wayne Gretzky, and then the whole thing is in quotations, and it says Michael Scott. Michael Scott. That's what I. That's what this is. Is it's like somebody kind uh, of quoting somebody else, but like quoting the entirety of it. But it looks like they're saying it. It's, it just. I don't know what it is. It's just like a personal bugaboo, but it just bothers me. Like the visually, it looks it looks weird. I'm a big fan of like when there's a when there's a process in place when so, when software has been designed a particular way. I really think it makes the most sense to use that software the way it's been designed rather than try to like work around the design. Sometimes you have to, but like you can share a, like you can copy and paste the link to a thread in Twitter and it'll actually like format it in Facebook nice for you and like it looks good. And they just don't do that. Just take a straight screenshot of the. And I think part of what bothers me about that is like you can't even click through to get to the original source, which is like that would be good because mm. then like you'd be, you'd be attributing it properly. You know, people can find it and get to it easily. I, I don't know. There's just something about it that bugs me. I don't know what it is. It's not like the person's in sin. Like it's not a, it's not a gospel <laughs> issue. I mean, it's, I'm not gonna like cast them out of the fellowship or call their elders over this thing. I, but it just it bugs me. It just bugs me a lot. I don't know why. Uh, can you imagine? Yeah. What specific instruction do we find in Matthew 18 for such a situation as that? I mean, I went to them directly and said, "Hey, can you cut this out?" And they were like, "What? Who are you? How did you get in my house? How did you get my phone number?" And I was like, I don't know, but I need your elders' email now. I need your pastor's email. And they're like, you're a crazy person. I'm calling the police. And you were like, really? Is it more crazy than you not using embedded functionality that yeah, would make exactly. this? exactly. Yeah. Just copy and paste the link to the thread. <laughs> Just be an, a reasonable person. So what you're saying is this situation that arises is like a combination. It's some amalgam of like social media inception and then like just super yeah. derivative copy and paste. So by the time you look at the final thing here, where it's like several iterations of this, are you saying like the image looks funky and it's sloppy and it's just weird looking? I mean, it's, it's a little bit weird looking. Uh, I think mostly for me, copying and pasting a picture of text seems stupid to me. It just seems dumb. So I'm like, just, just, I just don't. Cause then like, what if I want to copy and paste and share that with somebody Right. And this is why, like, then after it gets put on someone's, like, like, uh, like someone's organization page, someone else has to, like, share it from there. I'm like, if I want to share this quote, I have no option. Like, I'm the guy that actually, like, types, like, transcribes it out of the picture into text because I hate that. But, like, there's no option to do it except to perpetuate the insanity. And the other part of it is I'm like, let's keep Twitter <laughs> off of Facebook and Facebook off of Twitter. Like, if I wanted to be on Twitter, I'd be on Twitter. And if I wanted to be right. on Facebook, I'd be on Facebook. And I'd be like, get your Twitter out of my Facebook and get my Facebook out of your Twitter. So I don't know. It's just a weird, it's one of those weird things. I just, it, it's maybe it's like the uncanny valley where it's like, this looks a little bit like Twitter, but it's not quite enough like Twitter mm -hmm. that it makes me a little skeevy. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I hear you. This is our world yeah. now, right? It's like, these are, these are our legit issues. Yeah. I'm going to throw a curveball. We're going to talk about this for the entire episode. <laughs> Before we do that, let's move on before we actually do that, because I yeah. feel like this is one of those things I can rant about for several hours and for no good reason. It's a bit deconstructionist. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I get that. Somewhere somebody thought that was mildly entertaining. Well, what are you denying before I move on? Yeah, I'm also going to just jump on the bandwagon and go with something that's like of a technical nature that I'm 
so we could probably put both of our denials under the rubric of nobody cares. Like in the end, really, it's yeah. Well, I mean, it, I care. But well, yeah, I get it. But that's also one of those things where you can be like, yeah, like you said, n- non-salvific related denials yeah. today. We're we're gonna leave Doug Wilson out of all of this. <laughs> Although I, I'm sure I'm sure that he has done that very thing that you're talking about. Yeah, seems kind of like his style. I feel so. like he probably invented it. <laughs> wow, we just. Any chance we That's get. probably Any why chance. I hate it so much. Any chance. So my denial is against searching algorithms and functions in music, music subscriptions. So obviously the business model, maybe not obviously for some of you who haven't thought about this before, but really the business model subscription for audio services is to want to expose you to as much music that you haven't heard before. This also allows, of course, the service provider to make as much money as possible by way of whatever is the popular music at the time. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, you know, I subscribe to Amazon music, which I really enjoy. I highly recommend it, but it's just like that. And even Spotify, it is downright discouraging to try to find and search for specific music because they prefer for you not to They'd like to curate a list for you and give you all this music that they'd like to have you hear. And of course, the one that's the music that's the most profitable. So there are some bands that I have like a smart speaker, I have an Amazon Echo, that if I ask for it to play, like it just, it does not, it will not do, like I almost feel like she's fighting actively against me. (laughs) And then even in the app, if I go to search for certain things, like stuff just, it literally just won't come up. Like I have to go find a link. There's been a couple of bands and I'm not like listening to too esoteric stuff. The albums are all there. It's just awful. So they just don't want you to find stuff. They'd prefer to make it more difficult. And I'm just denying against that. Let me find the stuff. You know what I would like to, to do with algorithm based discovery engines. What? I want this like a giant internet reset button. Like I want to just like reset my <laughs> algorithm. Cause like, I feel like there are lots of times where like you'll get on a kick of something for like a week. Yeah. You just want to listen to something or like, like I'm getting all sorts of ridiculous, like late nineties, early two thousands, terrible <laughs> band recommendations. Cause I listened to that stupid song by grits a bunch of times. Cause it was stuck in my head. I want to be like, just reset this, like just stop, delete, undo, start over. Or like every once in a while, um, just like randomly Apple music will think I want to listen to like Taylor Swift for no, like for no reason at all. My phone will just start playing Taylor Swift at really (laughs) awkward moments. Like I'll, I'll like have my phone on my desk at work and all of a sudden like teardrops on my guitar will come up and I'll be like, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm like 38 years old. I don't listen to Taylor Swift. Like I don't even really listen to music. I don't even know why I have this app on my phone. And people will be like, oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you don't listen to Taylor Swift, Tony. And I'm like, no, I don't. So I just want to like reset the algorithms or like Facebook, like things you searched for on Facebook or like products that you've, like this happens to me a lot where like I'll see a video for a product and actually like the video is really engaging. I don't care about the product, but like the video is really engaging. So I'll watch the video and then I'll get like advertisements for that video or for that product incessantly until like that product stops being a thing. It, it, it's annoying. Yeah. The algorithm I was, is annoying. I was going to take this opportunity to introduce you to the world as a Swifty. So obviously bad timing on my part. <laughs> I'm not a Swifty. I don't even know. I, 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 the only Swifty thing I want is that thing that I use to clean my floor with. <laughs> well, I'm actually I'm really just... surprised she hasn't gotten on board with an endorsement for Swiffer. I feel like it that's does. a that's like a match 
that should have been made in heaven and, and just never happened. Yeah, I agree. Listen, at some point we've, we've gone too far with this idea and we just need to codify it. We need a segment on this podcast now, which is Jesse and Tony's amazing marketing ideas. So whether it's really being able to consult Taylor Swift on the potential opportunities of some collaboration with cleaning or the Berean Berets or the Fanny Crosby fanny pack. I mean, I guess we're just going to have to make this a formal part of the show. The other thing that's really funny that you can do to people is you can screw up their (laughs) algorithm. That's really fun. So if you, if anyone, uh, I don't, do we have an, an Alexa app thingy? Like, can you tell Alexa to play the reform? I think you probably you can. can actually. So you like can. next time you're at anyone's house that has an Alexa, just tell it to play the reform brotherhood and like do that every, like every time you go into the room, tell tell it to start and then stop it and then start and then stop it and just screw with their algorithm until all it can, all, all that Amazon thinks is that, that Amazon should be calling us asking us for our products because they're like, we don't know what happened, but everyone wants your products. That's great. I love it. So you're talking about, it's, it's not even like guerrilla marketing. It's basically like algorithm sabotage. Yeah. It's, it's like a form of hacking. Yeah. That's great. Well, speaking of hacking, let's hack this episode up a bit and actually get to what we want to talk about, which is this idea, these two words, which I think probably people are starting to become familiar with because they're kind of buzzwords now. And it's exvangelical, which is almost too clever for its own good, and deconstructionism. And again, if you saw the title of this episode and you're like, what is this all about? Is this going to be like some random, nuanced, esoteric, super nerdy conversation? The answer is, aren't they all? And the yeah. second part of that answer is, no, nah, actually, this is, nah, bro. That's what kind of where we're starting to come out of my mouth. <laughs> See, I was nah, going to be like, bro. yes, yes, it is going to be nerdy and esoteric. <laughs> I've got the Wikipedia page pulled up right now. So, <laughs> Nah, bro, this is something that we actually do need to talk about and actually something that you and I have kind of mentioned on the side. Yeah. But we're coming at it headstrong today. Yeah. So the 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 difficult thing about this, right, is that anytime a term or a concept makes its way into like popular culture, popular use, um, it, the term itself starts to lose its meaning. So like um, the, the word evangelical, for example, like it, it at one point had a very specific defined meaning that referred to very specific defined tenets of belief. An evangelical now could be anything like it could be you could be an atheist and be an evangelical, like legitimately be an atheist and an evangelical in certain definitions. So right. when you hear about deconstruction or the ex-evangelical movement, which is is just sort of a weird application of that, it's actually a, a sort of a reference to a very specific philosophical thing that has been influencing our culture now for quite a long time. And what I think is really interesting, before we get into too much of the brass tacks on this, brass tacks, yeah, nice. the brass tacks on this, um, is this isn't actually a new thing in evangelicalism. Um, it, it had it, this moment in the sun, uh, you know, maybe like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, and then that movement died out, and it's just coming back again. Um, so, you know, most of our listeners have probably heard of the emergent church, which was right. really just the application of postmodern philosophy to Christianity. Deconstruction really is just the application of postmodern philosophy to uh, to evangelical Christianity. And so I'm going to read from the Wikipedia page. We all know that Wikipedia is not always the best resource, but this is actually a pretty good 
uh, pretty good description here. And it says, deconstruction is an approach to understanding the relationship between text and meaning. It was originated by the philosopher Jacques Derrida, who defined the term variously throughout his career. Its simplest form can be regarded as a criticism of Platonism and the idea of true forms or essences, which take precedent over appearances. So so breaking that down, basically what Derrida and others in this deconstruction, postmodern uh, philosophical school of thought, their main argument was that... Uh, even if even if there is absolute truth out there. So postmodernism does not necessarily deny the reality of absolute truth. But even if there is absolute truth out there, we as as human creatures, as as humans who are locked into language, can only appro- approach that and appropriate that through our own reception of it. And so what I see is maybe different than what Jesse sees, right? I'm colorblind. So I, I have trouble with the colors red and green. So sometimes Jesse may see something and he sees it very clearly as two separate colors. I may look at that and those colors may look the same to me. I might be able to tell they're different colors, but I might not be able to tell which one is which. And so what deconstruction does is it takes texts uh, and, and sort of like strips them down. It pushes the text, whatever the text might be, it pushes it to this understanding that even the words we use no two people ever use the same word exactly the same way as each other. And and usually even over time, we don't use it the same way as we even did. So I might say a word yesterday and today because my life experience has changed and my reception of reality has been changed by the passing of time. I'm using that word necessarily in a slightly different way. So what deconstruction does is it pushes this idea that, that texts don't have a stable inherent meaning, any text, what, what, you know, like I send a text to Jesse that says, you know, like what's that, uh, for modern family, like Phil Dumphy is reading texts and he's reading and it's like WTF. He's like, why the face, right? He's, he thinks that it means like, why are you so sad? And it means something totally different. So what deconstruction does is it pushes this, this perspective on text and words and meaning to the point where words have no intrinsic meaning at all. And there's, there's an element of truth to that. And the reason that it's a criticism of Platonism is because Platonism has this idea that there's this reality behind reality, and that although the expression of that reality is, in fact, different in sort of this layer or substrate of reality, that there is this universal reality behind all of that, that is what gives this reality its form. So I'm sitting in a chair, Jesse's sitting in a chair. It's very, very unlikely that those chairs look anything alike other than the fact that maybe they all have some sort of sitting surface. They probably have arms of some sort and a back and then something that holds that up. But mine doesn't have legs, for example. It's an office chair. So it's got one of those like shafts and then like the spider leg things that are on wheels. Jesse may be sitting in a traditional chair with four legs that are static, but they're still both chairs. Well, what deconstruction would do is it would deny that reality behind reality on every level. So even the words that we're using, when I say chair, I mean something very different potentially than what Jesse means. So this right. philosophical concept, if we're going to understand what's going on with all of these so-called ex-evangelicals, Joshua Harris is kind of the most prominent one right now because he was featured on uh, a recent episode of the rise and fall of Christianity, uh, which is the sort of Mark Driscoll Mars Hill thing, not rise and fall of Christianity, rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, but then also he had this sort of like ill-advised thing where he was going to sell like a seminar to help like help you recover from all the damage that had been done to you by the book that he sold you 20 years ago, um, which he's not pulled from the market. But his his 
sort of being the face person of this, if you're really going to understand what's going on with deconstruction or these ex-evangelicals, which is what people are calling themselves when they've deconstructed their evangelicalism, then you have to understand some of these concepts behind it. At, at its base, deconstruction is about identifying the way that words don't mean what we thought they meant because they don't have any actual meaning. And so you question, you question, you question, you question, you strip away everything. And in reality, most people end up with nothing left. And that's kind of the point of this, is this utter skepticism of any sort of static reality. And then postmodernism takes that. It's called the turn to the subjective or the turn to the subject. Now, reality is all about our perception of it rather than anything right. external to ourselves. So we have to, I know that's a lot of like philosophical jargon that you probably aren't, aren't ready for at whatever time of day you happen to be listening to this, right? We just got done talking about Taylor Swift being a Swiffer, uh, a Swiffer sponsor or whatever. Now we're talking about, you know, Jacques Derrida. Uh, that's what you get on this show, <laughs> but, but you have to understand some of this stuff. If you're going to understand at all what any of any of the stuff that was going on has been going on with, um, you know, uh, Kevin Max, uh, from DC talk or, Right. Um, Joshua Harris or some of these other high profile cases that have happened, you know, have been prominent recently. Right. Yeah, that's right on. And we're, we're just coming in hot because it's, I think it's just important to get after this. I, I totally agree with you. I think what's important for everybody to remember here is that right now there's, there's some of this like exvangelicalism has become in vogue because there's these people kind of championing as if like somehow they're liberating themselves. Right from this worldview, which had them bound somehow, and not just like a faulty sense of reality under their perspective, but that it was actually in some way traumatizing them, that this was almost evil. There, There is like, the irony here is there's like a complete mockery of the scriptures and yeah. them championing the fact that this is not only just like a quote unquote bad worldview, but it's dangerous right. and destructive. And so whether it's like famous YouTubers like Rhett and Link or whether it's Joshua Harris, it's like almost cool nowadays to be the person that was like, well, I, I broke away from that and you can too, and you can be healed of this, you know, massive harm that evangelicalism has done. And I like the way that you said basically that the best way I think to think of deconstructionism is decoupling words from meeting. That's right. like the outworking in the end. Most people are going to start with something that sounds a lot more innocent and being like, well, how do we know? And right. these words can mean different things. And the Bible has been twisted in such a way. And there's so many man-made rules superimposed upon it that have done harm to the actual message that Jesus was bringing forward. All of that in the end, in my estimation, is a smokescreen to get us to the point where the Bible is not a valid resource because the words do not mean anything. Right. And of course, that's like totally untenable because... Yeah. You have to use words to make that statement. Right. So you're actually undermining your very position. You're literally cutting the limb on which you're standing. And so I think that it's, this is just like squarely, squarely, squarely inside the bounds of Romans one. It, it's right. just exchanging this truth for a lie. And the lie is that we know better of the lie is that the words can mean nothing, even while we're making statements that presumably are meaningful. Right. And whenever I have this conversation, either with somebody who's espousing this view or even among Christians, again, it's kind of an intramural discussion is I'm always reminded that, listen, like this is not new. And I would say the, the person who invented, so to speak, deconstructionism, he brought it up in Genesis three. 
Right. And so when the serpent comes up and says the attack, you notice the point of entry is one of words. It's explicitly of words and meaning. So when the serpent says to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then you have the woman recapitulating what God said, but she doesn't do it exactly right, right. Right. So we see almost the attack. And then we see an example of the improper way to respond to that kind of deconstructionist right. philosophy. So this is something that's been happening. And now we just see people who are trying to sound intelligent, recapitulating what Satan started with in the beginning, because right. I think we can be honest, this is a powerful way seemingly to bring about an attack. It's not powerful in its efficacy or in its support, but it's powerful because if you are not aware of what's happening here, you can get caught up in this idea that, oh my gosh, like what do words really mean? And oh, you're right. right. Like they, they, you know, somebody can say to you like this word meant something different in 1800s than it does now. And so therefore, because of that, doesn't that make you question everything that was written in the scriptures? So we have to be equipped to have really good conversations about the truth. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that strikes me, um, this is a phenomena that is going to and is affecting a particular branches, particular branches of Christianity more aggressively than it will certain other branches. Yes. So for example, you don't hear a ton about Roman Catholics deconstructing. Right. And the reason for that is right. because Roman Catholicism is not primarily a word-based religion, right? It's not based on the word and not, not based on the scriptures as the, the bedrock foundation. And actually Roman Catholicism does its own kind of uh, almost institutional deconstructionism in that previous councils have to be interpreted in light of the current magisterium's understanding of those councils. So when uh, a good example, um, Karl Rahner at Vatican II, he, he said all sorts of things that were radically different in substance than what the Council of Chalcedon had to say about the, the nature of Christ. But he was able to say, well, in light of our, our modern understanding of language and our modern understanding, the church has the ability to sort of like look at the words that were said and Im- import new meaning into them. And then so we can still affirm the words, even though we mean something very radically different. Right. Right. So Roman Catholicism has sort of this institutional version of it. But evangelicalism, Protestantism as a whole, and especially evangelicalism, these 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 traditions that are untethered to the historic doctrinal statements of the church, right? Non-confessional traditions. There's a lot to uh, a lot to the idea that they're being hit harder because they are already sort of a deconstructed movement, right? Evangelicalism as a whole, and like I said earlier, like that word doesn't have a lot of defined meaning. So we'll just say non, non-confessional Protestants of some sort that have decoupled themselves from the historic confessions. They've already taken to this perspective of deconstructing their historic traditions such to the point where they no longer need these confessional statements. They rewrite their confessional statements as they go, right? And so so now that that's happened, you know, institutionally with a lot of these churches and a lot of these people, now we're starting to see people decouple even from the institutionals that they were part of. So you have people who are walking away from uh, their former faith statements because those faith statements in a lot of ways, all of those were already clouds in the like castles in the right. sky. They were already built on no found, no real foundation at all. And the reason I say that is is not because they were not built on the scripture as sort of the 
uh, material that was used to construct this castle in the sky, but they for they sort of disregarded the actual foundational understanding of the scripture that the church had already laid. Right, we we see in the scripture that the the um, the foundation of the church is the prophets and the apostles. Well, it's talking about the scriptures for sure, but it's also talking about the prophets and the apostles, right? right? If if Paul had wanted to say that it was the scriptures, that word exists in Greek. He could have said it's the scriptures, right? He did use a particular turn of phrase that that is a reference to all of the content of the Bible, but it's also to be recognized that the, the church is a buttress and pillar of truth, not just the scripture, the church and the tradition that the church has created. I'm sounding super Roman Catholic, and I promise you guys that I'm not. <laughs> the church throughout the ages has established these these sound words of teaching, these sound patterns right. of doctrine that were commanded to do by Paul. And so, so once evangelicals started to decouple themselves from these sound patterns of teaching, well, yeah, maybe like the first generation of of faith statements from some of these evangelical churches was fine. But over time, as they decoupled and decoupled and decoupled, they deconstructed their own faith statements without even realizing it until they've been stripped away. You see some churches that have like these super minimalist faith statements. That's like the faith statements that we love Jesus. Well, yeah, we love Jesus too, but like there's more content to what that means than just the words. We love Jesus. What does that mean? Is it that we love Jesus the more the same one the Mormons love, who is one God among many, is it that we love we love Jesus the way that the Jehovah's Witnesses do that don't actually believe Jesus is God? Do we love Jesus? Do we love do we love the the guy from Latin America that lives down the street from us? Like what what is it? What do these words mean? Well, if we don't have this foundation that the uh, the church has established these con- confessional documents, these sound patterns of word that the churches have laid down. Well, the further away we get from that, the closer we are to deconstructing institutionally, which then brings us just a little bit closer to deconstructing personally. And that's what I think we're seeing from a lot of these people, whether it's Derek Webb, who, as far as I can tell, was never really tethered to a a secure, solid church, at least not after he started touring with Caden's Call. Like, he just never was really like an active, robust part of it. I don't know how you can be when you're touring every weekend, how you can actually be involved in your church that way. Or... Joshua Harris, who presumably stepped away from his church for good reasons to pursue seminary. But if you listen to him in this most recent interview, he actually stepped away because he he was starting to lose confidence in what it was that he believed to be true. And so he stepped away from that and then began this process of deconstructing while he was in seminary. Yeah, it strikes me that maybe what we're seeing is just deconstructionism 2.0 and that the 1.0 version is basically kind of like what you just said, which right. is we started it, we generally, like writ large, the church, right. started it a long time ago when theological and doctrinal specificity became a four-letter word. And we right. were like, well, we don't really want to nail down. We want our statement of faith to be open with respect to, we want to have freedom, whatever that means, allow the spirit to yeah. work among us in our expression of what it means to love Jesus. But, you know, maybe we should question if your theological statement if your statement of faith for a church is shorter than what the demons believe about Jesus, that's a problem right. because I think what we're seeing now is society, the human condition, relationships are complex, messy, and nuanced. And having this explicit instruction, explicit boundaries and description of what it means to put 
theological shoe leather, shoe leather onto life in the church has always been helpful. So this is why like we, you and I continually come back to things like the confessions and the creeds, right. not because they're divinely inspired, but because they're systematizing what has been divinely inspired and bringing that into the realm of practicality so that when we have questions, when things happen to us, our minds automatically go to what we've been taught and what the scriptures have said to us. And that becomes an actual rule for the way in which right. we live. And so when things are just left to our theology, like you said, that this is very famous these days, like we're Jesus only. I'd be like, yeah, well, that's great. But that's like not helpful when it comes time to understanding how does your church understand homosexuality? What does acceptance and agreement mean on hard issues? Right. How is Matthew 18 applied and all the stuff we just talked about with church discipline? Because people will inevitably hurt one another. And when there's too much liberty, when, in other words, when there's not a way to go back and say, this is what we believe the scriptures say very clearly, and this is how we're going to apply it in this situation, like everything, it devolves into chaos. That right. is a deconstructionism already that's right. taken place. And my concern with people like even with Derek Webb or with Rhett and Link or Joshua Harris and others is that they're actually deconstructing from a caricature. Right. So it's not even like a true representation of the scriptures. And unless we work really hard at educating ourselves by studying the text, by again, trying to understand what it means and how we apply it day to day, like on Tuesday morning, unless we work really hard at teaching our children and like loved ones, this is like hard work, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's an investment of time and energy and effort and both intellectual and spiritual fortitude. Unless we do those things, I think actually we are all going to be tempted to deconstruct and decouple from the scriptures in one way or another, or to feel as though it is not a rule of life for us yeah. because it seems incomplete or it seems we have, just like the Pharisees did, imposed some kind of superstructure above it. Like we created scaffolding around the scriptures that is not derived from God's instruction to us, but just the way that we would like it, either out yeah. of vain repetition or tradi tradition or because we think it's like the telephone game. Like we think we, this is what the scriptures say, but we've never actually gone into study yeah. for ourselves. So I just find when, to your point, when the church has worked really hard to put together confessions, creeds, instructions for our life, no matter what tradition it is that has those, if, if it's done in such a way where it's born out of primarily like some kind of group processing and vetting of this, of the scriptures to again, provide some like legitimate sieve through which to pass your thinking and your feelings and the things happening in your life. That is there for our great benefit. It's never there to like hem somebody in. It's actually there to bring you freedom to say, right. this is what the scripture teaches. Walk in this way unencumbered by having to onx over, well, what does it mean? And how do I know if the words are right? And, and what am I, what philosophies do I need to take into place? It's it, in the same way that God gives us that Decalogue to say like, this is for your great liberty. So also do I find, you know, all of these instructions for us. So I don't know, like, I mean, we could joke that like the opposite of deconstruction is construction. And I would say like, so how many of our churches are work are constructing, are constructing yeah. these strong pillars of doctrine and yeah. theology out of the scriptures and are teaching their, their, people this and are giving them opportunity, even aside from maybe the preaching on the Lord's day, it should be there too. But like embedded to say, like, I know a couple of churches that are really good about, like they have a reoccurring cycle, like a 10 year cycle of teaching theology. Yeah. And at any given point in time, there's like a Sunday evening or a Wednesday evening and, and they're inviting people saying, come, come learn 
how God would have us to live, come learn how to think properly about reality. And I think that's like something that we need to emphasize. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that strikes me about this deconstruction movement is the other thing that de- uh, that that postmodernism or deconstructionism pushed back against was a particular form of this kind of platonic ideal called foundationalism. And the idea behind foundationalism is that there's a certain a certain bedrock level of knowledge that is unassailable and it's unimpeachable and it's almost properly basic. Like it's something that everybody understands and then from there you build you build up from there. So almost all of mathematic Almost all of mathematics boils down to arranging the concept of one plus one in different in different ways, right? So just as a, at a basic level, I'm not a mathematician, so I'm sure there's some mathematician out there that's just screaming at their at their phone and doesn't doesn't <laughs> like us anymore. But if you think about like addition, right? One plus one equals two, right? Well, let's go up to two. Two plus two equals four. Well, if you take the concept of two plus two and you change it to two times two, you're still saying two plus two, you're just saying it in a different way, right? So so mathematics has these foundational principles of more or less addition and subtraction, right? But those are even that are like flip sides of the same coin. There's this foundational principle, and then all of the rest of mathematics to very various degrees and in different ways is built up from that foundational concept. You might have something similar in other disciplines where you have certain base level knowledge that you can't you can't really explain the why behind it anymore because it's that foundational to the system that you can't really dig deeper than that. Postmodernism and deconstructionism radically denies that concept. And so what they're, what they're going to say is like you you can dig as deep as you go, you can continue to dig and dig and dig and you never are going to actually hit that foundational axiomatic base because it doesn't exist. And so what we have to understand about deconstructionism as it's applied to evangelicalism is you have to foundationally, excuse the pun, which was unintended and probably pretty terrible, you have to fundamentally deny certain elements that Christians across the board, Protestants across the board are supposed to affirm, right? The the Holy Scriptures as the Word of God is a properly basic concept that is so foundational and basic that within the system of Christianity, there's, there's no why there's, there's no why to it. There's no, there's no explanation for it. It's an axiom that we affirm. And that's, that's the reality of it. Where, where I think the deconstructionists go sideways on this is they have that too, right? For them, they won't acknowledge it, but for them, the existence of the self as the, uh, the, experiencing agent or the experiencing subject, the reality of the self and the centrality of the self is that foundational principle. And so, you know, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know these different figures hearts any more than they've revealed to us. And so even that imperfectly, but a lot of these people, it doesn't seem like the scripture as the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience, like that foundation, unimpeachable reality was never true for them. It was never something that they understood to be true and embraced. And so as they were deconstructing, the scriptures themselves became a subject of deconstruction, right? So Joshua Harris didn't just ask deconstructive questions about sovereign grace ministries or about homeschooling or his understanding of courtship or his understanding of sexual purity, 
He went deeper, deeper than that, quote unquote, and he deconstructed the Bible itself, which almost always starts with deconstructing your understanding of the Bible. So it may be that he, on some level, affirmed those things. In fact, I'm sure he did at least outwardly affirm those things. But when you start to question the Bible itself as a legitimate source of authority, you've already stepped outside of the realm of Protestant Christianity. And so usually it's just a matter of time before you can acknowledge that openly, like, like all of these figures have. But what what you see is that there's a deeper foundation that these, these figures are digging to that forces them to sort of set the scriptures as the source of authority to the side. So whether it is, as you said earlier, questions about homosexuality or the news, the new thing is transgenderism or whether it's questions about um, the role of men and women in the house or in the church, all of these things, when you start to say like, okay, my understanding of the scripture was or wasn't correct on this, that then somehow translates to the scripture itself wasn't correct on this. You know, when we did the Derek Webb episode, we kind of remarked he deconstructed in sort of a strange way because instead of instead of coming to the scripture and saying, well, yeah, the scripture actually teaches something different, right? Taking that right. real postmodern turn of like, well, I know that this is what the words seem to say, but really for me, it means something different. He actually said, no, no, this is exactly what the scriptures teach. It's very, very straightforward what the teachers or what the scriptures teach about Calvinism and about sexuality and about all these things. I just think the scriptures are wrong. And so I don't embrace them anymore. That was a surprisingly honest expression of this deconstruction uh, that you don't normally see. Usually it starts with like, well, what does the scripture really teach? And then either they come to the conclusion the scripture really teaches that, and then all of a sudden it's this evil Bronze Age book that has no validity for life. Or it's this sort of like loosey-goosey, the scripture can mean anything I want, and in this context it means that, but in that context it means that. Um, But that presupposition, that axiom, that the scripture is not just an ancient book full of wise sayings, but is in fact the very word of God itself. You almost have to deny, and this is why most of them end up there. You have to then deny if this word from God is no longer valid, then right. the God who gave that word sort of no longer no longer can exist. And so when you deconstruct everything, right, you get down to uh, Descartes' cogito, right? I think, therefore, I am. Well, you might be able to build some edifice on that that has something external, but a lot of people end up with the uh, sort of conclusion there is nothing but the self, and everything we experience is just sort of like the self expressing itself. Well, okay, well, there, there really are things out there. Like, there really are. I promise you that car that's coming down the road to you is real. It's really real. It's not going to disappear when you close your eyes, so you should probably watch where you're going when you cross the street. And this is, this is why deconstructionism can be so dangerous from a philosophical self-perspective. And I don't know about you. Maybe this is, is speculating and psychologizing a little bit. I don't know about you, but these people who have deconstructed, they outwardly say how happy they are and how free right. they feel. But there's something that strikes me as so radically hollow about that statement with them. Like Joshua Harris does not seem like a happy person. Derek <laughs> Webb does not seem like a happy person. And, and for me, like, I guess I understand why when you've, you've eliminated everything foundational in your life and you're just floating out there as like this right. free floating self unencumbered by anything else. Well, that seems like a really lonely place to live and be. Right. And we've spoken about before how the how absolute truth will at some point be self-referencing. So right. what I find happening here is 
they're picking where the self-reference is going to take place and they become the ultimate source of truth. And right. when you realize that you're not, so they, in other words, like you said, to your point, they understand the scriptures well enough. And in some way there's some condemnation there because this scripture says like, this is the only rule of life. It's almost like the scripture says, and I mean, it actually says, if you separate yourself from Christ, here's the emptiness and the vanity that you'll find yourself in. And so it's almost like, you're, they're recognizing that that is a truth, or that's at least the way the scriptures are telling them the reality about the world in which we live. And so it's almost like acknowledging there's going to be a, a severe amount of emptiness because yeah. of that. And then ironically, embodying that emptiness in, like you said, their countenance is not one of triumph. I mean, still, it's like this idea of like a victim, and yet they seem more victimized having left the thing that they right. allegedly say caused them to be victimized. Right. And so... In every way, this is like deconstructionism, exvangelicalism. It's an attack on the perceptive will of God. We have to see it this way. Yeah. And because of that, again, it goes back into, we find it rooted in the garden. No pun intended there. Because I think some would say, well, when Satan brings this attack, what he's basically saying, some would argue that he's kind of just denying what our first parents said. Like, are you sure you heard that right? Right. And the way I understand that is he's actually he's like a surgeon. He is systematically in though indirectly trying to weaken confidence in who God is. Right. And that's what all this deconstructionism is. Now it's not to say, and we've spoken about this at length uh, about, I think we have a whole episode on apostasy, you know, like if we go and look at even what the apostle Paul writes, especially in Philemon, you know, he identifies for instance, his friend Demis as like a fellow worker who was with him imprisoned in Rome. And then later in his ministry, he writes that this same dude ended up loving the present world more than the things of God and walked away. He says that in second Timothy. So this is a reality. Paul points right. to this. We shouldn't be surprised. We talked about tears and wheat. We talked about visible and invisible church, but I think there's something here that to me is more nefarious. There's something, and I don't want to be too extreme, but there's something almost very demonic about this idea of de- deconstruction and because it's celebrated as some kind of triumph. Yeah. as some kind of being a champion over something that is repressive. And again, the great irony is that Christ has come to set us free. So this is how we know there's a profound misunderstanding in most cases with the shallow evangelicalism, because everywhere Christ, Christ is saying, come abide in me, come have abundant life, come be freed from your idols, including the idol of self, which wants to, to be separated and set above everything else to adjudicate all things, to have some kind of superintending reason that somehow knows what's best in every situation. He wants to set us free from all that stuff. But Romans 1 has us set as prisoners of war to sin, to the flesh, to the devil, who is the ruler of this world. Right. And to me, this seems like the same old game. It's Genesis 3. It's death warmed over. Yeah. And it's just right now we have people who are championing it again as like some kind of great cause. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this all sort of, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of goes back to the emergent church movement, right? The emergent church movement started as a bunch of, let's just be straightforward about it, a bunch of bunch of young, relatively affluent white guys who didn't have a lot better to do than than to sort of like question everything. Just just being straightforward. There there wasn't I I did courses on the emergent church movement. There weren't like inner city emergent churches. They just didn't exist. The ones that did were white guys who came from the suburbs and planted a church and all of their friends from the suburbs came to the inner city church with them. 
this is a distinctly well-to-do white phenomena. That's fine. I'm not, I'm not woke. I mean, I'm got the whole range of being like, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm not a wokeist. Like, okay, like just trust <laughs> me on this. But one of the things that emerged from the emergent church movement was this idea that doubts are okay, right? Doubts are okay. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to question things. And on a certain level, that was actually a beneficial thing. Because right. there are times where we have to doubt and question things because they're not, they actually are man-made traditions. Right. The emergent church really wanted to get past some of these out external man-made forms. And so they deconstructed those external forms and, and got to what they thought was uh, a more ancient historic practice. It really was just a lot of contemplative, new, new agey stuff with Christian language. What came out of that, though, was this concept that it's okay to, it, that doubts are okay. If you have doubts, that's okay. Well, what that's what that's turned into, and deconstructionism really is this sort of radical form of doubt, where it, it you're you're not only doubting things that are questionable, but you have to actually press in and doubt the things that are stable. You have to doubt everything. Well, now it's not only that doubt is okay, but doubts are actually virtuous. You sometimes see like exactly. why doubt is a good thing for your faith. Well, I'm gonna here to tell you, and the Bible is here to tell you, no, it's not actually a good thing for your faith. There are times that we have to question things. There are times when we will doubt. But here's here's what James has to say about doubt. This is from chapter one. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Right. So right there, that sounds to me like that person who has a question or is challenging things. Right? If they lack wisdom, the answer is not to deconstruct. The answer is to ask God and he will give wisdom generously. Right. Side note, he gives that wisdom generously through the Bible, but we won't get into that. And then it says here in verse six, let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. And golly, if that does not describe Derek Webb and Joshua Harris and Kevin Max to the T, right? These people who uh, they thrived in this in this time of doubt and questioning rather than go to God and ask for wisdom who promises that he will give generously. And not only does he promise that he will give this wisdom generously, he reassures us. I'm just parroting what I've read in Calvin on this. He reassures us not only will he give us generously, he won't chastise us for asking. Right on. So sometimes people feel like if they go to God with questions or if they go to the church as a proxy to where they get this wisdom through the scriptures, sometimes they do get reproached and that's wrong. But they, they rather than go to God for wisdom, who's promised that he not only will not uh, reproach us for it, but he will give it to us. Instead, they doubt and so then they blame God. There's usually this phase when you talk to these people, there's this phase where they blame God for the fact that they're not getting answers and they blame God that somehow all the stuff that he told them in his word was wrong and they challenge him on and they, they blame him for it. Um, you know, this, this movie comes to mind. Please do not go see this movie. The second commandment is screwed up all over this movie, but the movie Bruce Almighty, the, the premise of the movie is that there's this guy who is his life is kind of falling apart and he sort of sort of like challenges God and says like if I was God I could do this all better. And there's this scene 
there's this scene where he's like, he's driving down the road and he's like, God, just give me a sign. And there's, there's a, a, like a truck full of signs pulls out in front of him. And, and it's like, all these signs are like, stop warning, caution. Right. And he, he's like, I don't understand why you won't answer me. And then there's one part where he's like, smite me. Oh, mighty smiter of smiters. Well, this is what happens with people like, uh, I keep wanting to say Toby Mac. I don't know why. Just if I say Toby Mac, I mean, Kevin Mac. So just don't write your emails. I know that Toby Mac is not as far as we know at this point, he's not deconstructed, but this is what people like this have done. They not only do not go to God for wisdom, but then when they think that they know better and they start to doubt, they spit in God's face and challenge him. And this is exactly what it's saying. They are unstable in all of their ways. So Derek Webb, when he deconstructed and he, instead of going to God for wisdom, he is an unstable person. It is a form of insanity for someone to both uh, reject that God exists and also hate him for it. It's a form of insanity to both say that the Bible is not the word of God, but then to blame God for the things in the Bible. Right? That's, that's just insanity. It's unstable. So when you start to have doubts, maybe to put a little bit of practicality on it as we wrap up here, when you read something in the scripture or when you encounter something in your life that causes you to have doubts, the answer is not to press into those doubts and to embrace those doubts and to think that somehow it's the pathway to enlightenment or to self-realization to pursue those doubts. The answer is to go to the scripture where God has promised that wisdom is found. And he promises that if you do that, if you genuinely search the scriptures, he is not going to reproach you. Instead, right. he will give generously to you simply because you've asked and he knows how to give good gifts to his children. So th- this deconstruction thing, I think a lot of times people can sort of feel that it's not good. They can sort of sense that it's not good and they can't really explain why. Because, I mean, asking questions, why would asking questions be a bad thing? It's the kind of questions and it's the posture that you have to take in order yes. to ask a deconstructive question. It makes you the Lord over the text rather than the God who gave the text, the Lord over you. It's fundamentally a rejection of God's sovereignty, which as Jesse has said, is fundamentally what happened in the garden in Genesis three. Right. And not only that, it's a matter of when you ask the question, what are you going to rely on? If presuming that you want a real answer and you want the answer that comports with reality and not just some kind of quick and easy pat answer or hallmark version of the answer, but that you're actually looking for what the truth is, then it's different if you ask these questions and you go to the scriptures, as you're saying, to the source, and you are genuinely concerned with how God might instruct you through the mind and changing the heart. That's one thing. But I think it's helpful to take, so you quoted James, which is brilliant. And how many Christians really don't take advantage of what James gives us there as this mode, this way into gaining wisdom. I think it might be helpful just quickly to, you know, kind of bookend that with something from the Old Testament. So if everybody were just go, when you shut off this podcast, go read Proverbs 1, 20 through 33. You're going to find there what I think Tony and I are exactly talking about, which is promulgating this reality that the Bible lays out very neatly for us. And that is in Proverbs, in a kind of explicit way, well, a very explicit way, wisdom is personified. It's just ever crying out to the masses to seek her so that they may live. Right. And yet 
that what Proverbs tells us there is men, being incredibly good at folly and mocking, refuse to listen to this woman's wisdom's call, but instead they foolishly mock the wisdom. Right. And then as a result, on the day of calamity, when it strikes them, and it will strike them, they're going to cry out to her, but it will be forever too late. And yeah. instead of this sweet voice of this lady wisdom crying out to them, they're going to hear her actually like derisive laughter as she lay hidden beyond their grasp. Yeah. And of course, elsewhere, we know in the scriptures that this wisdom that Proverbs is referring to has a name and his name is Jesus. Right. That, that, that is just a euphemism for Jesus himself. So this is where the Reformed tradition, I think, is so helpful to us because it brings forward a couple distinctives that are important for us to, I think, remember as we close this out. One is that always and everywhere, the Reformed tradition is reminding us that there is law and there is gospel. And the gospel is freaking amazing. And the gospel reminds us that what is required of us is just a little bit of faith. And the second distinctive is we don't manufacture that faith ourselves. Right. We don't build it. We don't construct it. God in his mercy and his loving kindness gives us the faith that is required. So even yet while we ask, even yet maybe like David, we cry out, God, why? Why does it feel like you've forsaken me? Or why am I so confused on this? Or why do I feel so turned around right now? As you said, Tony, he does not punish us for that kind of speak. He actually welcomes that as it, it comes through faith. And in that faith, which he provides, yeah. he gives answers and peace and comfort because he longs to be with his children as they wrestle through sometimes the inevitable doubts of what it means to follow closely after the Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. Where we part, though, is when we say, oh, God, I have these doubts, but I'm not going to listen to your answer for them. I'm right. not going to actually seek after the wisdom and the means by which you've given me to process that wisdom. I'm going to refuse that. And to your point, well, then that's just like, a, this is total futility yeah. because don't bother then trying to ask a question that you don't want to really hear an answer to and yeah. the answer from the one who can provide it. Yeah. Well, Jesse, our, uh, our left turn signal has been on for like 55 minutes. Yes. So... Jesse, we've got some free books that we're giving away. Yeah, listen, loved ones, we want to give away some free books. We know you like to read. We know you don't want to pay for the reading because there's nothing better than a free book except free grace, which really wasn't free, but you know what I'm saying. It's true. So we have a contest right now, and the somewhat cryptic reference to 1517 is that all of these books have in common, they're basically born out of 1517 publishing, which is kind of like uh, a loose Lutheran think tank, if you will. It's a group of like-minded Christians, and we're giving away three books. One's called The Christ Key, Scandalous Stories, a sort of commentary on the parables, and Night Driving Notes from a Prodigal Soul. These are all great books. They're by our, what we're calling Lutherans in residence. We hired Lutherans to be part as, you know, kind of a consultancy piece. <laughs> we pay them nothing. We pay them nothing. It's true. It's true. In fact... Yeah. It took their time and resources to be on our show. So they, they paid us, sort of, to come and be on our show. It's true. So here's all you have to do. And I, we, we're getting this at the end of the podcast so you can shut this off. It's going to be top of mind. It's right there for you. Do this as soon as you hit stop or as soon as the da-da-da's end at the end. So if you want to 
earn a copy, earn, win a copy. There's no meritorious work here. If you want to <laughs> win a copy by grace of Chad Bird's book called The Christ Key, all you have to do is go leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you want a chance to win Scandalous Stories by Eric Sorensen and Daniel Emery Price, just share the podcast, a link, or the podcast generally on Twitter. And if you want to win Night Driving Notes from Prodigal Soul by Chad Bird, just go drop a little share on Facebook. Now, the last thing you have to do to consummate that bad boy is you just have to send us a screenshot. Yeah, you've done one of those three activities, the rating or the share on podcast or share on podcast, the share of the podcast on Twitter or Facebook. Send it to info at reformbrotherhood.com. Do it now. Do it right now. Now. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse, yeah. I mean, I feel like there's Go. a little bit of law gospel confusion going on with you right now. This is a covenant of work. You've got to do some stuff here. You gotta do some stuff in order to get an entry here. So it's like it's like the contest is like the federal vision version yeah. of, of That's the gospel for this contest. So but it's okay because this isn't salvation, it's just some free books. Yeah, it's just free book. Free books are by works. Yes. Free books are by works. Yes, that's true. It's Sounds true. strange. Salvation is by grace, but free books are by works. Yes, exactly. This is a gospel, or this is a covenant of law, covenant <laughs> of works. So, well, now that we've derailed and crashed completely, Jesse, <laughs> the last bit about the contest is you need to make sure that your entry is in our email box, and that was info at reformbrotherhood.com, in our email box. Or if you really want to, you can send it to reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. I know we've said both throughout the course of this contest, so we'll be checking both of those and we'll uh, we'll randomize that. But you need to make sure that that's in our email box, one of those two email boxes, by midnight Eastern time on September 3rd. Any entries received after midnight Eastern time uh, on September 3rd will not be considered for this. And you can enter all three. So if you love the show and you just want to share it everywhere and rate us, you can do that. If you happen to somehow win more than one book, we're going to discard one of our choosing of your entries. You can only win one book. So if you have a, a particular book in mind that you really, really want, uh, then you should enter only that. Uh, otherwise, if you just want to win a book and you want to maximize your option or your opportunity to win a free book, then you can enter all three ways. By the way, I know it sounds like this is a little bit complicated, this work style of like, you got to do something and take a picture. It's not that bad. It'll take you maybe like 30 seconds. And I want to set people at ease. If there's somebody out there, it's like, listen, I'm reformed through and through. I'm not going to enter a contest for some kind of Lutheran books. Here's the thing. I've read two of the three of these bad boys. I'm getting into scandalous stories. They're all fantastic works. Yeah. These are all brothers. They have wonderful things to say. And even beyond that, you're going to pick up, there's like a little bit of a Lutheran accent. You're going to feel like, what does that taste? Is that like a little bit of corporal presence I'm tasting yeah. right now? No pun intended. Then, <laughs> y yes. And I think this is okay. Like we ought to, we, you and I have talked about reading over your head, reading broadly. This is so helpful. Everything we just talked about deconstructionism, one way to fight against that is to read a little bit broadly so as to make sure you are resolute in your own convictions and yeah. you understand some of these nuances. But what you're going to be, uh, what you're going to find in each of these books is blessing. So yeah, would you just go ahead, rate, review, share, send us a little screenshot, info from brotherhood.com, a free book shows up in your mailbox, then your socks get blessed off. Yeah. I actually took my socks off during this episode. That's how that's how off my socks were blessed. So with that thought in mind, because it's like a thousand degrees in my office. You just held up your socks. I, did. Like, I want There's, people to know you literally just yeah, held up your I socks. I took my my socks were blessed off during this podcast by the ridiculous heat wave we're having. 
But in light of that, and before Hurricane Henri hits us, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood. What if I